From City Current Media, this is Doing Good, a show about social enterprises, impact investors, global corporations, and more, making money while making a difference in their communities. I'm Jocelyn Hebda, and today on the show, how a retail advertising executive led a micro-enterprise from the brink of collapse and turned it into America's largest shoe and apparel social enterprise. The term social enterprise can be challenging to define, especially as the number of social enterprises continues to grow. If you think of it as a spectrum, on one side you have traditional nonprofits relying on donations to deliver social impact. On the other side, you have traditional businesses providing goods or services in pursuit of profit. Social enterprise exists in the gradient area between the two extremes. Sometimes a social enterprise is a business that has pledged a certain amount of its profit, product, or employment opportunities towards a social or environmental problem. Other times, a social enterprise is a business venture within a nonprofit, generating positive revenue that fuels the larger mission. No matter where the organization falls on the spectrum, to be successful, you need to hold on to the strategy from the traditional business side and the driving mission from the traditional nonprofit side. In 2012, when Buddy Teaster came on to Souls for Souls as CEO, the organization had lost both, and people were saying there was no saving the organization. But Buddy had a unique background from both the for-profit and nonprofit sectors, and that's where our story begins. You know, like a lot of people, I certainly don't have a plan. My undergraduate degree is religious studies in French. I worked in theater. I went back and got my MBA in arts administration. So none of that certainly has any obvious connection to what I'm doing now, except that when I got to Souls for Souls, which my seven year anniversary was on the 15th of October, so just yesterday, was it is a, to me a perfect blend of the for-profit and not-for-profit experience I've had since then. And I think that's one of the things that makes Souls for Souls unique. It's certainly one of the things that keeps me really engaged. I've never been happier in my life. I mean, every day I just, I mean, even today, the things that I've been doing, like, I love what I get to do. So it's been personally fulfilling, but the sort of professional and personal really intersect in a beautiful way here. And I think part of that's the model, part of that's the team, part of that's who we work with. So all these things have come together, I think, to create, I would like to not be unique. I would like other social enterprises to find interesting ways to help fight poverty and give people an opportunity to get out of poverty for the long term. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to do that. Social enterprise, I think, is a really powerful way of thinking about that. That's different from a lot of the not-for-profit approach or the aid approach of the last 50, 75 years. And I think that's going to be a big way that this problem gets solved. So this is a big debate within discussions around impact, aid versus enterprise. If your goal is to eliminate poverty, like Souls for Souls, Do you give people what they don't have, like food or technology? Or do you provide an opportunity to earn the money to pay for what they don't have? There's no one right answer for every situation. But when you're starting a social enterprise, people are going to ask you, why are you building a business to serve the role of a nonprofit? There are lots of reasons for doing that. Some are philosophical, some are practical. So the practical one I'll start with is it, most not-for-profits live, I mean, every year you start at zero, right? If you're, in the, if you're funded by grants or other kinds of philanthropy and that's your primary, that can go away in an instant. 
And so there's this kind of terror is maybe too strong a word, but there's a lot of fear in that model. So having a model that allows us to treat a big part of what we do as a business, to take sort of a sales customer service approach to what we do, I think not only keeps us honest in our relationships with people who would typically be in quotes a charity case, that does a lot of things. It gives a lot of agency to that person who is usually on the receiving end and who just has to take what you give them, right? If you're giving it for free, it's hard to be ungrateful for that. But by making it a commercial relationship and saying, uh, this is what we're offering and this is, do you want to buy it? It gives that person who is usually, I won't say powerless, but in the in a less powerful position to say, no, I will pay less, I will pay more, I want different. I, that is a hugely powerful idea. So there's a very practical component to that. I think the other piece that's more philosophical is when you look at the number of people these numbers are directionally correct, who were living in extreme poverty 20 years ago, it was in the billions. Now it's under a billion, right? So the, the dramatic decline in the people living in on less than $1.90 a day, which is the UN's definition of extreme poverty, is now under a billion people. That is remarkable. That did not come about through UN, World Bank, not-for-profits. It came about mostly in India and China through business. Right? People got, they had to move, there was a lot of disruption, but they went to places where there were jobs, they moved from subsistence farming to earning a livelihood to now their kids go to university. Right? So in the few short generations, it's totally different. So when Souls for Souls looks at that and says, well, what's the better model? The 75 years of no progress or the 20 years of dramatic decline in extreme poverty? So we think, well, that, there's probably something to learn there. So taking a business approach to an intractable, deep-seated problem, and it's, you know, it's effective, it's not a complete solution. We've seen real progress for people who have said, look, if these were my options, I would be every day just barely hanging on. And now with Souls for Souls partnership and how they have brought certain goods and services to us, I own a house, my kids are eating a couple of meals a day instead of once a day, my grandchildren are going to school, that's what changes the trajectory for lots of people, right? They, they know what to do. They're willing to work harder than you and I are willing to work, frankly. And what they need is an opportunity. And so when we couple that, like, here's all this stuff that we don't need, whether it's in our closets or in a company's warehouse, and couple that with people who want to work hard but just need a break in making a living, well, that turns out to be a really powerful intersection. And when it happens, it's a beautiful thing to see, to, to, to see people who have done it themselves, right? There's a lot of support, but they can look in the mirror and say, I did this. And that's a big deal for a lot of people who in communities where that's not often an option, or they don't have access to people who can tell that story to them. This is a big deal, and they inspire others, and that's the right kind of virtuous circle to be a part of. So when I came to Souls for Souls, microenterprise was a part of the story. and. However, it's complicated to explain. It's really easy to say to someone, we're giving away sh shoes for free to people in need. And like, you don't, that's it. That can be the end of the story. When you say, we sell shoes to poor people in the developing world, there's a lot of like, what are you talking about? What does that mean? You sound terrible, right? <laughs> like that sentence, nothing about that sounds right. So I think what had happened is the people leading social at the time were doing the work but not telling the story. And they weren't doing the work very deeply. And there, 
the used shoe and clothing business around the world is a giant global cash rich thing, right? So we didn't invent that, but we said, rather than just sort of go through the usual channels, which is easy to do, how do we get to the point where we can provide the most amount of that final sales price in the entrepreneur's hand, not in some middleman's hands. And so when we started to say there's a, a better way to think about that, we did, I mean, you know, this is sort of business 101, you cut out the middleman, right? And so by doing that, we were able to get the person, usually the woman, on the, in the market at a table or in a small shop to have higher quality goods at a lower price so she can make more money. So, again, I didn't invent this, but coming in and having a chance to look at everything afresh and say, are we really doing what we say? Are we doing it as well as we say we're doing it? Or could we do it better? Opened up the door to say, there's, a, there's actually a pretty straight line. It's not easy. Um, these entrepreneurs need a different kind of support. We have to have different partners on the ground. So there are, you know, in that chain, there's still a lot of work. But when we could get aligned with everyone to say, how do we get the most money possible to her? Things got at least clear about what to do. Then it's execution, not philosophical. When you came on board, the company had lost a lot of trust with the donors. And, um, and money. And money, <laughs> right. And money. How did you go about rebuilding that trust? So you're right. I mean, when I came, and the reason that there was a CEO opening was it was a train wreck, right? I mean, Souls for Souls was losing a lot of money been some very bad press, especially here in Nashville, which is our home, and in the corporate community. As you know, companies are very sensitive to, do their partners have a good reputation? And so the phone wasn't ringing, is a, is a nice way to say it. So when I came, that part was super obvious. You know, the first day I came into Souls for Souls, I'll never forget this, one of the women there, I was just asking like, sort of, what's it feel like now to be here? And one said, my granny called here and said, what the hell is happening down there? And Nicole was her name. Nicole said, you know what it's like to have your grandmother call and question where you work? So it was really personal, really intimate. And that was, for me, a super eye-opening moment to say, this is not some abstract problem for everybody here. These people spend a lot of time here. Their reputations are on the line, too. So very quickly, I think one of the things that I was able to do coming in from the outside is to say, uh, it's bad. Like, so let's not kid each other about that. But I will make one promise. I will always tell you the truth, and I want you to always tell me the truth. So from the beginning, this value of transparency, which sounds kind of cliche and like, God, values and blah, blah, it's all up on the wall. It was foundational for us to then go to our employees, to the board, to the corporate community, to the donor community and say, it's worse than you think. And it's probably not hit bottom yet. Like we have still have a way to go. But here's, here's our assessment of where we are, here's how we think we're gonna get out of it, and here's what we'll do in terms of keeping you in the loop. And then we did that. Like so we told people, mm, yeah, we keep finding new things under new rocks. And so it wasn't the bottom, but nobody was surprised when we came back and said, look, it's gonna take longer or cost more or be harder. Nobody said, you didn't tell me that. And so we rebuilt that trust, I won't say quickly, but from the beginning, that was a very conscious thing we wanted to do, and being transparent was foundational to that. Then the other thing that we had to do that also built confidence and trust internally and externally was we had to fix the business. Like, so 
all the reasons that we lost $2 million the year before I came, we, like, that's not sustainable. We were broke. So by saying to everyone, look, here's, here's what it's gonna take, and every month sharing, so people think they want transparency until the news is bad. They're like, well, wait a minute, I didn't really wanna know all that. No, that's how we get there. We have to be honest with each other about all of it. And so as everyone understood the depth of the problem, some people are like, I'm out. <laughs> I don't want to be here, it's too risky, I have a family to feed. There are lots of very legitimate reasons, or I don't believe you. You know, the guy who was here before said we didn't sell shoes and that turned out to be a lie, so I don't believe you either. So there were lots of people who had very legitimate reasons to say I don't want to be here. But the ones who stayed, they knew what we were getting into. And so we have a lot of the team who went through all of that. And so when you can look back and say, as I did this morning with our president and CEO, who's been a sold for sold employee since the first year, to say, Think about where we were seven years ago. There is a camaraderie and a depth of relationship that only comes from kind of going that fire together that allows us now to take advantage of these opportunities because we know what it was like when we didn't have them. And so we value and treasure that. But even with that solid internal team, Souls for Souls still faced a major challenge with the public's perception of the social enterprise and corporations' willingness to partner with a brand touched by scandal. Well, internally, I definitely see those leadership principles. Externally, though, that's that's a marketing problem. Yeah. <laughs> nicely said. Nicely said. So, so, but I, but I, it, it's true. But I think the marketing problem was not so much the story we were telling, although that was a part of it. It was sitting down with the leadership of apparel companies and footwear companies and saying the same thing we were saying to our employees, is bad. So it was marketing in the sense that we were trying to reposition Souls for Souls, but it was still taking those values. We, and we came up with four, transparency, being entrepreneurial, being accountable to each other and to our partners, and making sure that the work is meaningful. Those are our four. And, and we would tell that to the corporate partners, like these might not be your values, but no, this is how we're running this thing now. And we're committed to that. So it didn't look like you know, we did have a new logo, we did have a new tagline. So there were some things that we did to sort of change that conversation. Much more important was the, the repeated, consistent conversation with the leaders of these other companies to say, this is what we're gonna do, and then doing it and telling them that we did it. So that's, that's still marketing, it doesn't look like maybe traditional marketing. It was far more important than any of the other sort of obvious things that we did. When, we, when you combine those things, like, hey, here's the new story, and we're gonna not only uh, talk about microenterprise, we're gonna lead with it. We're gonna say, this is the reason that company XYZ should get behind this. They went from, that's crazy, to we believe, we believe in capitalism, we believe in business, you know, whatever these things are that they use every day in their professional career, like, wait a minute, you're gonna take some of that and apply it to this social sector? We're really intrigued by that. So it did take longer to tell the story, but by, using sort of principles and a philosophy that people already kind of understood. They're like, wow, that's, that's way better than we thought. So that was another part of the marketing was to, to reframe what microenterprise meant in a way that made sense to business people. And it wasn't like, this isn't, you're gonna get a charitable deduction if you give us your extra shoes. Here's the, here's the impact that's gonna have. Way more important than the value of that tax deduction. 
Absolutely. All of this is branding in that how people perceive you, how people feel about you, not not just the logo, not just, you know, whatever kind of tagline you come up with, but really your reputation out there. That is all the brand positioning. Absolutely. So reputation is the key word. And it took a long time. I mean, it's a cliche to say, but, you know, trust takes a lifetime to build and an instant to lose. That happened with Souls for Souls. You know, there was a time, it doesn't happen as much anymore, but when you Googled Souls for Souls, the first page was all bad. So no corporate marketing leader or CSR leader or anybody is going to say, oh yeah, those are the guys we want. So it had to be that sort of hand-to-hand, face-to-face conversation every time to do exactly that, to, to rebuild our reputation, which came primarily from the transparency. Like without that, the rest of this wouldn't work, I'm convinced. I mean, I guess we'll never know, but from my perspective, if we didn't have that as the uh, leading edge of everything that we did, I think people would have been much more suspicious. They were already skeptical. You know, we certainly had people say, you should just shut it down. You should change your name and act like you don't know those other people. I mean, so there were some corporate marketing people who said, you can't get out of this tailspin. So that's a pretty high level of skepticism <laughs> to sit down across the table from somebody. But uh, we decided that really the core of Souls for Souls is the right story, the right message. There's just a better way to tell it and to be honest about why we're doing it. And it's no surprise, but when you're honest with people, not everybody says yes, but the ones who do are like, we're in. Instead of the cause of the month, whatever, you can sort of cycle through. This is a long-term play and people want to be a part of that. When did you first see that things were starting to turn around, things were working, people were catching on, becoming those long-term partners? That's a great question. I don't think it was one thing. I think there were several, but a couple of key things. One was when we started to rebuild our board. Right, Our board up until that point, and certainly when I came, was down to just a few people and there were no industry people on the board. And my first thought was, well, that seems insane for companies in the footwear, we're in apparel now, but then it was mostly footwear. There are no footwear people on the board? That smells bad. And so the, we went to a guy who'd been a supporter. He was at a big publicly traded shoe company. And we asked him to be on the board. And he had to go to the CEO of the company and get that okay. When, when that all worked out and Clay was going to be able to come on the board, that felt like a giant step forward. Right, because they're an industry leader, everybody knows them. The woman who's the CEO there, she's a huge rock star. So that was a big deal. Um, and then I would say, on the more on the corporate side, was when we started, there's a big trade show in Las Vegas twice a year called Platform, it's a big shoe show. And the first time I went, like nobody would talk to me. I mean, like people would, See, I was with Souls for Souls, and that was kind of the end of the conversation. So it was probably 18 months later when I went to this show, and I knew a few people, and we'd had some time to kind of re, restart the Souls for Souls story. And they're like, tell us about what you're doing. I'm like, oh, okay, the word is getting out. So it wasn't like a ta-da kind of moment, but there were a few of these things that, that said people are paying attention, and at least for some of them were doing the right things. I would say more recently, Jocelyn, the, probably one of the best partnerships that we have is with DSW. 
And we'd been working with them for 10 years, but it had been very kind of, we were one of many not-for-profits, it was a few extra shoes, it wasn't central to their either internal or external story. And then in May of 2018, we launched a program together, so obviously we started working before that, but they said, it's time to dial this up. You guys seem like the right kind of partner for us. And to me, this is, this is how partnerships are supposed to work in the cause marketing, for-profit, social enterprise world. Their customers were coming to them and saying, we have a lot of used shoes. Can you help us figure out what to do with them? We don't really know what the best use is. So their customers had a need that they needed to solve. DSW was saying, you know what, we've been supporting dozens of charities. We need to get down to a few and make a much bigger impact. So we went through sort of a competitive process and they said, we're gonna, obviously it makes sense because you helped solve this customer problem and we're about shoes, so that makes sense. Then they said, let's collect shoes in stores. They have 500 stores. So customers can come in and drop off shoes. So it solved that customer problem. It got traffic in the store. Super hard to do for retailers these days, right? It's a big challenge. People really responded. They got an incentive for their loyalty program. And from March, uh, sorry, May of 2018 to the end of October, two million pairs of shoes. Wildly successful, right? Uh, beyond anybody's expectations. And we also do a travel program. We do 35 or 40 travel programs a year. So now DSW is traveling with their employees and their customers to say, you wanna go see the impact of what you're doing? Let's show that to you. So it's been business relevant because it's driving traffic. It solved the customer problem. It engaged them in a loyalty program, got them in the stores, they're buying more shoes. That's a big win. And now their employees and their customers can really see, like there's a direct connection between what you did and how that impacted people in the developing world. That is unbelievably powerful. So we would never have gotten to that position unless we had rebuilt that trust over the last four or five years. Things were finally looking up for Souls for Souls now that the team was bolstered and they regained the trust of outside supporters. In fact, corporate support was so strong that they were able to expand the social enterprise to apparel in an initiative called Clothes for Souls. We have a Clothes for Souls brand doesn't roll off the tongue the same. There's not the same awareness, but there are some companies we work with that are like, we want that. But very organic in that, I mean, there's a lot of consolidation in the fashion industry, footwear companies are now apparel companies and vice versa. So they were coming to us and saying, hey, we know you take shoes, but we have a bunch of clothes. Do you want them? So it was much more on the corporate side. And we said, well, sure. <laughs> we always say yes and then figure it out. But a lot of these markets that we're already in with the microenterprise program for footwear, they're like, yeah, we can do apparel. So sometimes they were, and they didn't know that we could provide it, and sometimes they said, no, we're ready to expand. So there was very much on the demand side, people were saying, yeah, we could use that. So I think it was a little bit of confluence of things, and once, once we started, I mean, the apparel market is, depending on how you measure it, eight or nine times bigger than footwear, so the volume is huge. So once we figured out that yes, there, there was demand for it, that we could move it, that it made economic sense, uh, it turned on the tap. So this year, we collected about four and a half million pairs of shoes, new and used, and it was almost the same number of pieces of apparel. So when we were looking back at those numbers, five years ago, apparel was essentially zero, and now it's 
the value is different, but in terms of the piece volume, it's almost the same. So it's really been a dramatic growth for us. It has given our entrepreneurs other options. So, so it's more money in their pockets. It allows them to serve their customers better. It, it has fit into our part, like some of that inventory we're selling. So it's improved our financial strength. We were not as dependent on shoes. I think another thing that we're, we're getting more conscious and willing to talk about is that's keeping a lot of stuff out of landfills, right? So since Souls for Souls started, we've kept out more than 50 million pounds of shoes and clothes out of landfills. Because the apparel market is so much bigger, like that's a lot of volume that we can continue to grow because it is insane how much gets thrown away. So it's good for the earth, it's good for our entrepreneurs, and it's good for Souls for Souls to, to find a way to get people to use that stuff more effectively instead of throwing it away. Win, win, win. Win, win, win. Exactly right. What are you looking forward to? I know you're doing a lot of work in the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian. You have the Street Business School Initiative coming up. So disaster relief is always really critical to what we're doing. So responding to the Bahamas is slow. Like they don't have any infrastructure. So moving things in and out has been really hard, but that's starting to happen now. So that'll be a focus. And I think one of the things I like about Souls for Souls is we'll be in the Bahamas for five or ten years. Like this won't be, hey, here's a shipment of shoes and clothes and... Good luck. It'll be, what do you need next year? What do you need next year? What do you need next year? And so I, I love that about our ability to say we are not just the initial responders. We can be there to help for a long time. And I think that's will be the case in the Bahamas because they have years ahead of them to rebuild. One of the things that I think this street business school idea really responds to is we have been focused on entrepreneurs for a long time, but we... We aren't on the ground, we don't speak the language. And sometimes our partners on the ground are providing some support and education to those entrepreneurs, but mostly not. They're small not-for-profits and they're trying to keep their doors open too. So we're partnering with this group from Denver called the Street Business School. There's a phenomenal track record of training entrepreneurs from the poorest communities who are maybe not even literate, that they can be entrepreneurs. It is so damned exciting, I cannot believe it. So right now they've only been working in Africa. We're gonna start with them um, next week, as a matter of fact, the first time they work in Central America. So we're gonna bring a group of partner organizations from the Caribbean and Central America and some of our team to go through an immersive eight-day training program with the next step being those local partners will go out into their communities and train groups of 20 to 40 people to be entrepreneurs. Some might be in the shoe business, most of them won't. They might be doing food, they might be doing babysitting, they might be doing sewing, but they're gonna go from people who don't know that they can be entrepreneurs and if they have the resources to do that to being successful entrepreneurs. So our role in helping bring more people into the entrepreneurial ecosystem, I cannot be more excited about that. I mean, it is really a big deal. So our plan will be to do one in Central America, one in Africa, probably Uganda next year, with the goal, if those both go well, to where we will be certified to actually go do the training, where street business schools say, yeah, you guys know enough to go do this, and we will train those partners directly. So this is a longer, much longer-term play for us. The results the street business school has gotten, I'll just share a couple of statistics. They've got, they've got thousands of entrepreneurs, and I don't know the exact number. 85% of them still have at least one business after two years. 
For those women making less than 65 cents a day, their income goes up on average 1,000%. All of the entrepreneurs, their income goes up on average 200%. That is mind-boggling. So we want to be a part of that, whether, in, whether that's through taking it to a different part of the world, Central America, or expanding that network in Africa, we think we can help be a part of that. The last thing that we're doing, so our biggest challenge is how do we collect more shoes and clothes, right? We need to, we need, we earn about 70% of our revenue from our earned income activities like microenterprise and travel. So we still have to raise 30%. But even the 30% that we raise, a lot of that is to help us collect more shoes and clothes. So anything that we can do on that front is totally aligned with our mission of having a billion dollars in economic impact by 2030, right? That's our, that's our big goal. So we, in the last two years, have opened staffed warehouses. Often it's only one person. There are a few that have more than one. Warehouses in Oregon, California, Texas, Colorado, Virginia, New Jersey, and Toronto. So the last two years we've opened those. Earlier this summer, we opened our first warehouse in Western Europe. So we have a warehouse in the Netherlands. And in early 2020, we'll have one in Singapore. So this idea of how do we exp expand to make it easier for people to donate their shoes and clothes to us is really critical. So first, we're not even 70 employees, so we're a small organization. To be working globally is fun, complicated, challenging, but I think ultimately Look, Europe is the same size as the U.S. in terms of population. It's a little bigger. They are way ahead of us on a lot of sustainability issues. How do we tap into that, both corporately and individually? So there's a giant opportunity there. Asia will be harder. You know, the distances are greater. The culture of giving is different. So there's lots of things to figure out. Um, but we've had a, a good partner, a volunteer, really, in Singapore that we're going to build on. So it's exciting to think about that. And so those are probably great examples. We still have a real heart and important role for free distribution through disaster relief. We are trying to think more about how do we help entrepreneurs become better entrepreneurs regardless of whether they work with us. And then we still have to drive collecting shoes and clothes because that's what makes our engine go. There was one question I had to ask, the driving question behind this whole podcast. With the lines blurring between business and nonprofit, where there's corporate social responsibility, B Corps, impact investors, cause marketing, and a dozen other categories of money-making enterprises making a social impact. What is our responsibility in business now? What does being a good business mean? That is a great question. Um, and I, I don't have an answer is a short, short way to say it because I think there are lots of ways to define that that I might not define it the same but are still moving us closer to being sort of better people, more willing to help others using the tools and resources that we have. Some of that might be a social enterprise, doesn't have to be. And I think the thing that's encouraging to me, whether it's talking to people in the CSR world or individuals or social enterprise leaders, this awareness that there is does not have to be a conflict between doing good and doing well is, again, as sort of hackneyed and hallmark card sounding as that is, 15 years ago people said that was untrue. Now a growing percentage of people are saying that is absolutely true. And so to me that's good business is that how do I think about accomplishing all my goals, financial, etc., and also being a part of the community that I'm in, 
being a good global citizen, you know, however you define that, that those two things don't have to be separate. Like I'll work really hard to make a lot of money and then later be good, right? No, you can do that right now. And you don't have to be the CEO or the founder or whatever. Everybody can do that. One of the things I love about Souls for Souls is, I've mentioned shoe drives are, and collecting shoes is really important to us. We have seven-year-old kids who collect 25,000 pairs of shoes. Again, when I think about the kind of confidence and experience that that person is gonna have at seven, I mean, you better get out of the way. This is a kid who could do anything, <laughs> right? And those opportunities exist in lots of, not unique to Souls for Souls. So finding ways for people to have that sense of agency. Our new tagline is creating opportunity through shoes and clothes. That's an opportunity for people like we talked about in the microenterprise world to get out of poverty for the long term. But it's also an opportunity for each individual to say, I can make a difference. Clean out my closet. Do a shoe drive in my community. It's an opportunity for companies to say, this stuff that we think of as waste that we've been putting in the trash or thinking about as a problem is actually fuel for some other kind of fire. And everybody has an opportunity to think about that in a different way. And that's what we want to be a part of. And for me, that's what I think is good business. That's Buddy Teaster, CEO of Souls for Souls. If you want to know more about Souls for Souls and their apparel enterprise Clothes for Souls, check out our Facebook page, at Doing Good Pod, where we'll link to their latest campaigns. Thanks for listening to our first episode. If you liked the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to get a new interview in your feed every other week. And while you're there, be sure to leave us a review so we know what you like. That also helps other people find the show and get inspired to make a greater impact through their own organizations. I'm Jocelyn Hebda, and you've been listening to Doing Good.